Good morning, 10 o'clock. This side's awake. This side I still need to grab the tension off. Uh, it's great to be uh, here with you all this morning. Uh, for those of you who don't know who I am, my name is Joe. I'm one of the elders here at SBC. And it's a privilege to bring to you God's Word. And we are going to be in two sections of Scripture this morning. The first is going to be Romans uh, uh, 12, verses 6 to 8, which we'll read. And then a little later, um, we're going to be unpacking in more detail uh, Luke uh, 10, verses 25 to 37. Just a pre-warning, that's probably not going to be on the screen behind us. Um, but it is a big chunk of Scripture that we'll be uh, unpacking, the Good Samaritan. Um, and so as we have been journeying, for those of you who might be new, we've come into the end of our series on the Holy Spirit. Um, we have uh, been going through the Holy Spirit now. I think this is our 13th week. And uh, as we've come to the back end of this series, we have started looking at uh, spiritual gifts. So we looked at spiritual gifts in general. We started looking at specific uh, spiritual gifts. We looked at prophecy, tongues, and healing, and where we stood on what would be considered a controversial uh, spiritual gifts in the church, and how we apply them as a, ch as a church, and how what we hold to it. Um, if you wanted to go catch those, you can catch those online. And then last week, we looked at maybe a spiritual gift that doesn't catch the headlines, but is vital to the church. And that is um, the gift of hospitality. And then this morning, we are going to be looking at another one that probably falls into a similar category as that, is that it's maybe not on the top of your list of things you want for Christmas, but it is certainly vital uh, for us as a church. And that is the gift of mercy, the gift of mercy. So if you have your Bibles, Romans 12, verses 6 to 8, it should be on the screen behind me. Can you all hear me fine? Is it Okay. All right, I just noticed the change. Romans 12, verses uh, 6 to 8, it says the following. Paul writing here to the church of, in Rome, it says this. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. So we must use our spiritual gifts. We want to fan them into flame. And I hope that series has done that for many of you. It says, yeah, if prophecy in proportion to our faith, if, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in his generosity, the one who leads with zeal. And here it is, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. The one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. So there's this gift of mercy that has been given into certain people's hearts. But what do we mean by it? Well, for those of you who like definitions, uh, this is what the gift of mercy is. We will define it for you. It says, whilst all believers should be caring, we'll come back to that, the gift of showing mercy seems to be the special ability that God gives certain people to feel empathy and compassion for individuals in particular distress and, ab and ability to help them in word and or action. So this wonderful gift of mercy, it seems that God has instilled within certain people's hearts a great capacity to be able to have compassion and empathy for people who find themselves in distress. And they do so constantly. They have a heart for people in this area. They do so happily as they go and help certain people in uh, very desperate situations. And now what often happens, the person who has this gift of mercy has a general sense of mercy. They care about most people who find themselves in difficult situations. But often what I see is when they have the gift of mercy, God breaks their heart for a particular cause. 
a particular situation that God will break their heart for and place a passion with them to go and help. And so we've got the purviews here this morning. It is God has placed within their heart the gift of mercy, but particularly around those who are broken in that of addiction. And so through the mercy, the, this gift of mercy that God has placed within them, people in the, uh, the, in the struggling, in a desperate situation with the addiction are helped through their ministry. So we've got Rico and Tracy the Beer here this morning. God has placed with them in their hearts the gift of mercy. And so through the love in action, we see those who are struggling with poverty and, and are poor and are homeless and, and unemployed get ministered to through a particular passion that God has placed within their hearts. And so while this, this gift is broad in mercy, Often what God does is he places a particular cause on these people's hearts. And so, I mean, the, the list is endless in where this mercy gift is placed on. It, it could be the, in areas of counseling. Counselors generally have the gift of mercy within their hearts. People who work alongside the sick and dying have, God sometimes gives them the gift of mercy. Working with the bereft, refugees, prisoners, natural disaster victims. Really, the list is endless in where God can place a certain passion within their hearts to help those in need. But what happens is when we see this variety, this gift of mercy uh, pop up in a variety of different passions and different causes, when we take them all together and the church functions in that area well, is we see the holistic hearts of God for those who are broken through these various people as they minister to it. So I want to say this morning, this is a vital gift. The people might have these different passions with these passions. If you have the gift of mercy this morning, I want to say you make us as a church a more loving church. You help us to display the heart of Christ for the broken far better than if you weren't a part of our, our body. And so you are vital to this body and we love you all the more for it because you help us to function in this area. You help us to be a better reflection of Jesus in a broken world. So thank you. But what I want to point out to you is that while people are gifted in this area, particularly gifted, and we're thankful for them, we as Christians are all called to be merciful. We saw this last week in Luke chapter 6. Jesus, at the end of one of the passages we read, says, Be merciful as your Father is merciful. So there's this call on the Christian's life to be merciful. But I don't know about you, but I think sometimes being merciful can be tough particularly to those in different difficult situations. So how do we get there? Where is this mandate from Jesus to go and love and be merciful to others in desperate situations? Well, there is uh, probably no greater passage in Scripture, no uh, more famous parable in and outside of the church. I haven't done research on that. It's just uh, my guess than that of the Good Samaritan. And so I'm wanting to read the text for us this morning. We're going to unpack that. And hopefully, my hope is that those of you who have the gift of mercy this morning would be encouraged. Those of you who have it but might not be using it, might be stirred to use it. And for the rest of us, that there would be a passion within our hearts to love like Christ has called us to love. So with that in mind, let us look at Luke 10, uh, verses 25 to 37. I'm sorry, it's not going to, I don't think it's on the screen behind us. Uh, but here it is. Let, let us read together. And it says, And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test. That's Jesus. Saying, Teacher, what shall I do when, to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? 
How do you read it? And he answered, you should love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly, do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. But by chance, a priest was going down that road and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was and when he saw him, he had compassion. That's what we want this morning. And he went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring oil and wine. He, he, then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever you spend, I will pay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And he said, the one who showed mercy, showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, go and do likewise. I'm sure that most of us, if not all of us in this room this morning are familiar with that parable. And often when we hear that parable taught, we don't necessarily hear the context in which it is preached. Because Jesus isn't just randomly choosing a story to teach. This isn't the Sermon of the Mount with Jesus preaching many, many different things and this being one of the stories and one of the parables that he would teach. But rather, this is a the story, the, the Good Samaritan happens as a response to a question. It is provoked to cause Jesus to tell this wonderful, wonderful parable that we have come to know and love. And it happens that a lawyer asks Jesus a question. Now, when we think lawyer, we often think civil law. That's not necessarily the case here. He, this is more likely a biblical uh, theologian uh, uh, the, uh, understanding the law of God. He might have been involved in politics. They often were. But when it comes to, um, when it comes to talking about a lawyer, this is a, this is a student of God's word. He understands the word. And so what we see here is he comes along, he's listening to Christ, and he stands up. In Jesus' day, when people would be teaching, a person would teach, all the students would be sitting and listening. And when they wanted to ask a question out of respect, they would stand. And so this lawyer shows culturally outside, he shows that he wants to show Jesus respect. However, what we see in the text is that this was just a mask of what was happening in the heart. He was, while trying to say, I'm respecting you, Jesus, it says he's, he wanted to test him. He wanted to test Christ. His motive wasn't necessarily there. And he, he wants to test Jesus. And so he asks Jesus, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? A vital question. A question I hope that you have asked. What shall I do to inherit eternal life? And, and he is probably expecting Jesus, the friend of sinners, the friends of tax collectors, the friends of the outcast, he's probably expecting the man that hung out with people that the other religious people didn't would answer that question saying, it doesn't really matter how you live. God will accept you just as you are. Kind of hoping to catch Jesus out and prove that he is a heretic. 
But Jesus, being Jesus, knows that this is a test. He doesn't answer the question, but asks the question back. He says, what does the law say? How do you read it? And he answers famously he, with those famous words. He says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your uh, strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. Uh, the, he, goes and he, for, he goes and answers it with these very profound two things. Now, this wasn't, um, this wasn't something that this lawyer had made up. We know that already by Jesus' day that the, the scholars and the, the scribes and the Pharisees, etc., had summarized the law into these two principles. And so he answers them and he answers correctly. But in order for us to understand what Jesus is trying to do here, we need to understand the magnitude of what this man has just answered Jesus with. He says, you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. What does it mean? What does it mean to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? Well, there's a guy named Arch, uh, Archbishop Templeton. He once put it, he says, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength is this, that your religion is what you do in your solitude. Your religion is what you do in your solitude. What does that mean? He's saying when you are in the middle of nowhere, there's nothing to distract your thoughts. There's no plans that you have coming up. There's no business ideas that you need to think of. There's nothing pressing to take your mind from you. In that moment, with hours of nothing, where does your mind run to? Where does your mind naturally go? What do you naturally think about? He says, is it, is it when you think of God? Do you think of his attributes? Do you think of his character and the wonderful things that he has done? Does that, do those moments, do you naturally go to praise of this great God? And of course we don't. And so Archbishop Templeton will say, wherever your mind would run to in that moment, that is your religion. That is your God. That, that to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and strength is when your mind has nothing to distract it. It means that you would constantly think and dwell on the wonder of our great God. That we would be so content that if God had to strip everything away from us, that we would be content nonetheless because we would have the most important thing. We would have God. Is that it? <laughs> I mean, that is huge, right? That is massive. And, 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 and that is just the first law. There's still another one. That's just the, that is one of the summary, part of the summary. There's a second part of it, and that is to love your neighbor as yourself. Well, what does that mean? Well, Tim Keller says, to love your neighbor as yourself is to meet the needs of your neighbor with all the force, the joy, the speed, the power that you meet your own. You'd be as happy for them when their needs are met as you would be for your own being met. Man, these remarkable two things. Who could possibly live like this? Who could possibly do these things? Because you see, what happens is we take all 613 laws that we find in the Mosaic Law. You could get to a place that as you do them, you could just tick them off in some sense, and you could feel pretty good about yourself. But when you take all 613 and you place them into two summaries that come and, and speak about the heart, the nature, the, the motive, the, the, the attitude behind these laws, you start to realize that you have no chance in fulfilling them yourself. 
And so when Jesus says to this lawyer, how do you read it? And he answers like this with these grand things to love God with everything and, and to love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus responds and says, you're right. So go and do it and you will live. Go and do it. But Jesus is kind of saying, good luck. Who could possibly like that? If that is where you think life is going to be, you were right. You're right. If you could do this, you would live. But good luck, because who can possibly do these things? Who could go and live like that? And so this, this lawyer knows what Jesus is doing. He, he hears the, we'll go and do it. And he goes, oh, I know, Jesus, I know what you're trying to say. You're trying to knock me off my horse here. You, you're trying to prove a point. But he, he wants to justify himself. He knows he has to love God with everything, but do I really need to love all people? So he says, well, can't we whittle that loving down of all people? Can't we just make it more doable? Can't, you can't possibly mean I must love everyone. So let's whittle it down and ask the question, who is my neighbor, Jesus? Make this more doable for me, please. And Jesus goes, well, okay, who's your neighbor? I've got a story. I've got a parable. And so he, he teaches the this, this story, and the story includes a hero who goes and meets the basic need of someone who has found themselves in a desperate situation. It's, incredible, it's incredibly costly. It's incredibly sacrificial. And he goes and meets all the needs that the person has. Now remember, what is the question that's being asked? Jesus, what is the bare minimum that I can do in order to love my neighbor? What is the bare minimum? And Jesus says, you must go love everyone. You must even go and love the people who do not look like you, who are different to you, who believe something different to you, that you would consider your enemy. Because remember, Samaritans and Jews hated one another. They were arch rivals. The Jews thought the Samaritans were oppressing them. The Samaritans thought the Jews were oppressing them. They both thought that each other's religions were blasphemous. They could not stand one another at such a point that they couldn't stand it that the Pharisees would say to Jesus, ha, you are Samaritan, because it was an insult. It was an insult. And yet Jesus would poise these two enemies and say, well, you need to go love like this. You need to love others so radically, so differently, that when the world sees you, they are astonished at the kind of sacrificial love that you have. You would love people that others would not necessarily love. That when the world see you, they want to come and know what you believe because they can't possibly understand that you would love people in such a way. It's astounding what Jesus is asking us to do and the kind of mercy he's wanting us to have. And just in case you think, well, maybe Jesus is exaggerating here a little bit to put this little cheeky lawyer back into place that he will kind of show him and, and make him feel bad in front of everyone and put him in line. Jesus elsewhere speaks about the magnitude of which we should love. In, in a passage in, in Matthew 25, he uses an imagery of what it would look like on the last, on the, in the final judgment, where Jesus says that he will come as judge and he will judge those who, who know him or don't know him. He will separate, as he says, he uses the imagery of separating the sheep those who know him from the goats, those who thought they knew him but didn't. And he will separate the two. He will weed out the goats from the sheep. And, and those who are goats will go, but Lord, how do you know? What did we do? What, how, why aren't we part of those who are sheep? 
And Jesus replies to them in Matthew 25, verses 42 and 45. He says these famous words. He says, for, where, for I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. I just want to point out hospitality there. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. And then they will go on to say, then they will answer saying, Lord, when did, you, when, did you see, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? And then he will answer them saying, truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. I've said astounding a lot this morning, but I've got to say it again. That's astounding the magnitude of what Christ calls us to do. And I want you to think of it like this. What happens is Jesus often says that we can tell if someone's a Christian by their fruit. So let's consider that this morning. You have a fruit tree here, an apple tree. The same time of the year, an apple tree over here. It's got leaves and it's got fruits. On this end, we've got another apple tree. Same time of the year. Everything's the same. Besides, there are no leaves and got no fruit. Which tree is alive? The one who has fruit and leaves, right? But do, does the fruit make it alive? Or does it prove that it's got life? You see, the fruit doesn't make it alive. It just proves that there's life in it. And the same ways with us friends, loving those who are in desperate situations does not save you. I want you to hear that. Being good and loving other people does not bring you into a salvation relationship with God. That is purely through Jesus. We sung that this morning. It's by His blood being applied that our sins are removed. But what Jesus is saying is if that you have experienced life, if you have known me, if you do know me, what will happen sooner or later, maybe not immediately in your life, but over time, the sanctification that was being spoken about through Mark, that we are being transformed from one degree of glory to another in Christ. As 2 Corinthians 3 verse 18 says, that what happens is that we are starting to love people more and more and more. It is evidence within us as believers that we have to go and love like this. This is evidence that we have met Jesus. This is proof that we have life in Christ. Now, I think as we hear that this morning, we might want to come alongside the law expert all of a sudden and also go to Jesus. We're sympathizing with him, but oh, can't we narrow that down a little bit, Lord? Can't we make it more doable? Because I'm feeling a little guilty, and I would like not to feel a little guilty, so could you make, make this easier? But Jesus is no chance. He doesn't allow us to limit it at all. And there, there are three things in this passage that show the magnitude of what Christ is asking us to do. But he, he counteracts the ways that we try and limit who we should, we should love. The first way we try as believers and as people try limit though limit who our neighbor is, is we limit the who. We try and limit the who. I said this a little bit last week when we love, we naturally love people who would fall into the us category. People who look like us, people who believe like us, people who would hold to certain beliefs that we hold to. We are willing to love them, not necessarily willing to love people who are different to us. But Jesus in the story doesn't let us think like that. Again, he, he poisons uh, two people who are opposite ends of the spectrum in terms of uh, who they are. 
a Jew and a Samaritan. And so Jesus is saying to us, don't you dare limit the who based on what people believe and who they might be. Don't limit the who. When we are called to radically love our neighbor, we are to do that to everyone. Don't limit the who. The second way we try and limit it is we're trying to limit the when. And, and we love to do this. It's, we, we say, well, I don't mind helping that people because, you know what, load shedding happened and everything blew up and thieves came in and took it all. Nothing, nothing, that was none of their faults. And so they found themselves in a bit of a bad situation, not of their fault, and I don't mind helping them. But that family over there, that family, they've made some really unwise decisions. And they've done some stuff that they shouldn't have done, and they find themselves in this need because of themselves. They deserve to be there. I don't want to help them. Well, again, Jesus tackles this kind of narrative in this text. You see, what you've got to realize is that in our day, we live in a rather individualistic society. So I look at Mark, and I treat Mark based on Mark and him. So I treat him based on his actions, and my relationship with him is based on what he has done. But in, but in Jesus' day, they didn't live in an individualistic society. They lived in a, a community. And so the Samaritan would have come alongside and seen a Jew who he hated, who knew they hated him and treated and oppressed him and was horrible to him. And he would see the Jew lying in the road, and he would, by cultural standards, have gone, you deserve it. Not because of his actions, but because of who you belong to. The Jews are bad, and so therefore you deserve to be in that situation. And so when Jesus chooses these two different cultures and make them, uh, uh, and shows how the one loves the other, he's showing even if you think the other person deserves to be in the situation they're in, to radically love, to love your neighbor that I'm calling you to do, you should still go ahead and love him. Don't limit the when. The second way in which Jesus tells us we should not, what, and what we like to do is we like to limit on the how much. We like to limit on the how much. We, we say, oh, I would really love to help, but I just don't have any money to help. I would really love to get involved, but it would cost me something, and therefore I don't want to do it. Jesus puts two other characters in the story. He puts in the Levite and he puts in the priest. Now, we'll come back to them again a little later, but the Levite and the priest, when they see this man dying in the road, what do they do? They go to the other side and they scurry off. Why? People have come up with many reasons why they didn't want to be involved. But one of the obvious ones that they didn't want to be involved is because when you see a dead person who's been mugged and attacked, not quite dead, dying but not dead, it means that there's a very good chance that the, pe the people who made that happen might still be very close by. If someone has been attacked here and I've come around the corner, I'm going, where are their attackers? And so the priest and the Levite go, well, to stop and do this is going to be costly because this I might end up in the same boat. And so they head out around the other way. But the Samaritan, regardless of the cost, puts his life at danger Knowing that he could be in the situation, he stops and he helps. But not only does he consider and put his life up as a cost, but he also opens up his wallet. He takes up money, uses his resources, his, his, his time by going to an inn, looking after, leaving again the next day, puts it all on hold. He counts the cost. And so Jesus says to us, if we are to be people who are merciful and to love our neighbor as he's calling us to love, we are to love regardless of the costs. It needs, in some ways, to be 
costly to us as we accord, not just when it's convenient. But who can possibly live like this? Who can possibly do such a kind of love? I, 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 as I consider, I know, man, how can, how, can I? Can I? And I realize as I talk and, and, I, and, and as we talk about loving your neighbor and doing this kind of life, that there might be a tiresome, just a tiredness that comes over you. Like, really? Whew. How can I do that? See, D.A. Carson's explains why we have that tiredness amongst us, particularly in our generation in the 21st century. He says, you know, what's happened in our generations that hasn't happened in previous is the rise of mass media and social media. He says what that has caused to happen is when there is something big that happens across the world, we are called to care about it in a moment. So there could be a school shooting in the States, and we would leave out here and it would be all over Facebook, all over our social media, on the news things, and we would be called to worry about it. And, and it is it is a tragic thing that would have happened, and so we worry and we're concerned. Then something else happens in the UK. Their parliament seems to be falling apart. And now there's these ramifications of what that can be for us. And so we start worrying about that. We're called to worry about a whole bunch of things, these big things, these massive things, but yet things that we can do nothing about. And so we are stretched in all different directions to worry about these things. And this is vastly different to any other generation. A hundred years ago, you would not ever have heard about what happened in the States. You might have heard about it months, if not years later. And so the difference is that we get called to worry about these big things that we can do nothing about and emotionally drains us. It calls us to have compassion on things that we can't solve so that when there's a small thing in our immediate context that we can solve, we go, oh, I'm too tired to do that. Does it make sense? Oh, that seems so insignificant. I just don't have time to worry about this person in front of me that I can't help because of all these things. So how then do we as Christians get to a point where we can love like Jesus loves us? How, what is the motive behind us giving ourselves to this? What can we do? Well, maybe one, you should start re, stop watching the news as often as you do. But besides that, that's not on one of my points. But Jesus in our text gives two things. He gives two motives that drive people to love like this. And the first is inadequate. The second is all adequate. The first is insufficient, the second is all-sufficient. And the first motive that is inadequate is the motive of morality, secular and religion. So secular, secular morality will come to you and say, you need to be an enlightened, a progressive person. You need to go and love and give the vote. Vote accordingly. You need to give your time. You need to give your money because look how rich you are and look how poor they are. Feel guilty about that so they forgive. Religion morality in, in Christianity, Judaism, uh, uh, Islam, name any major religion who have emphasis on the poor will say, go and com I command you to go and do it. But Jesus in our text shows that just the simple command isn't enough to radically love like this. He shows us in, with, the, 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 with the, the priest and the Levite. They were designed, they were placed within a structure. Their whole job was to love the poor. 
Their whole reason why they existed was to help people who find themselves in desperate situations. But when they come upon a man who they should help, who they commanded to help, who society expects them to help as their job, morality itself that tells them it's right doesn't lead them to a place of costliness and sacrificial love. It is not good enough. Morality does not help us to live it. Because each and every single one of you, if you've been in church for any time of, a, of, of any stretch, knows that you are commanded to love your neighbor as yourself, right? The command is there. Nothing, I'm saying nothing new to you this morning. But has that command helped? Jesus, I want to ask you a question this morning. Do, do you feel guilty after, so far in the sermon? You might, and that's okay. Do you feel guilty that you aren't doing enough, that you lack? You've lacked enough care. You haven't done what you should. Well, Jesus says in this text, stop. Because the guilt isn't enough to make you love like this. Guilt is not sufficient in making you love like this. So how can we possibly love like this? Well, Jesus gives a second way. And Jesus says to us, in order for us to Love our neighbor as we love ourselves. You need to realize that you have been radically neighbored yourself. In order for you to be a radical neighbor to somebody else, you need to be someone who understands that they have radically been neighbored. So let me give you an example. If you never gave blood, but suddenly, all of a sudden, you find yourself in a car accident and you need blood, and that blood that somebody else has given saves your life. All of a sudden, when you leave that hospital and you're okay, you become a proponent for giving blood, right? Because you have been a recipient of somebody else's grace. And so in the same way, we need to realize that we ourselves have been radically neighbored in order for us to love. And Jesus does it in the story. What does he do? He doesn't say to this Jewish lawyer, I've got a story for you. Here is a Jew. He's riding on his steed. He's the hero. And he's riding along and he finds a Samaritan who has been beaten and robbed. Get off, that Jew got off his steed and then helped him, paid, a car, paid price for him, saved him and took him to an inn. He doesn't do that because it wouldn't have been good enough. It wouldn't have been sufficient enough. The, Jew, the lawyer would have said, no, I've never, that's mad, Jesus. I'll never do that. That would never have happened. I won't be a traitor. The Samaritans who oppress us, why would I help them? He deserves it. But what Jesus, that, did Jesus do? He puts the lawyer as the person who needs help. He helps them identify with the person who is in a place of need. And he helps them to see that he would have been a recipient of grace from someone he probably didn't deserve it from. Someone who probably hated him, showed him and extended him love. So in, in light of that, the lawyer can go away going, well, if I have been loved like that, then I can love others as well. And friends, I want to say to you this morning, whether you're a Christian or not, this is true for you, but particularly for those of us who this will hit home for you as a Christian, that you have been radically neighbored. You have. You have been radically neighbored. Christ is not just the good Samaritan. He's the great Samaritan in the story. He's the ultimate fulfillment of what a Samaritan is, the good Samaritan is. Because just like the Jew was enemy with the Samaritan, so we were once enemies with God. Just like the Jew who was lying, lying there. Actually, we were even in a worse situation. We were dead in our sin. Dead in our sin. 
dying. And yet God, Christ, would leave the glories of heaven. Like the Samaritan got off the, the horse, so, so Christ will get down from the glories of heaven, the comforts of heaven. It will cost him much to leave everything that he deserves all the praise and honor from angels, the full presence of God, as He would dwell in heaven, He would give up a great cost to come and live among us, to be among us, to come and live in our filth and our ugliness. Christ would do it because of His compassion and His love for you and me. But the difference is that Jesus, the Samaritan, comes along and gets down with the potential of dying. The thieves might be around, and this might mean I lose my life. Jesus left the glories of heaven with the certainty of death. It was through his death, the only way he could save us wicked and dead on the ground was through his very death on the cross. He came with the full knowledge that he would have to die for you and me. It didn't just cost him the glories of heaven, it cost him his love and his life. So that as he died on the cross, the wrath of God would be poured upon him instead of upon you and me. He would take our punishment upon himself. He would bear that. So that as he dies on the cross, our sin would be washed away. So that the blood of Christ might be sufficient for you and me. So that our sins would be gone. So that we can say, uh, uh, that, but through the blood applied, that we know God. And the difference here is just like the Samaritan, the Samaritan would take uh, the Jew to an end. But what's even greater is Jesus is the greatest Samaritan. He doesn't just take him us to an end as a guest, but he brings us into his household and makes us sons and daughters of the living God. Friends, you cannot be compassionate and love Jesus, love your neighbor as Jesus is calling you to do just because you are commanded to do so. It won't be sufficient. The only way we can possibly even get close to loving our neighbor like Jesus asked us to is to realize that he has radically neighbored us. That he has come along and loved us with this glorious, glorious love that we would love others better. And so we have this massive calling as Christians, this radical calling as a Christian and upon a church, and we should do it. So I'm gonna, I have some more to say, but we, we're coming to near the end, and I want to spend some time in communion. Is that for us to be able to do this, we need to know we're radically loved, and this is one of the best places that we can do that. We have been radically neighbored, and these elements show us the cost, show us that we did not deserve it, and we weren't the right people that Jesus should have saved. We didn't deserve it. If he came only to save those he... he who deserved it, he could have saved himself with a trip because none of us do. But he, he has saved us. And so as we hold on to these elements, as you hold on to the grape juice that represents his blood, as you hold on to the body, the bread that represents his body, remember you have been radically enabled. And may, by the power of the Spirit, may God use this moment to soften our hearts so that we might be people who can be good neighbors. And we can hear the words of Jesus. And you see when he says, you go, and do likewise. So come forward. Um, and I'm going to ask the service if they wouldn't mind, come forward. And we are uh, going to receive this. And, and then let's hold on to it, spend some time meditating upon it, and then we will eat and drink together.
You can come. You can come. You can come. As you hold on to these elements, may you be reminded, Fraser, you can just stop there. Stop it down a little, thank you. Uh, as you hold on to these elements, may you be reminded of how much you've been loved. May you remember that you get to know this wonderful God because of, these, because of what these elements represent, not because of how good you are, not because of how much you have been able to love your neighbor, but because you have been neighbored. And you've been loved radically by Christ. And as you hold on to these elements, may God stir within your hearts a, an awe and a wonder that he would leave the glories of heaven, regardless of how wicked and evil you were, and love you so radically. And that he would make you a son and a daughter of the living God. Praise God. And may that stir with such passion in your heart and may it mold and soften your heart so that you can go and do likewise. May we be merciful because we have been recipients of a fantastic mercy. Let us eat and drink together. Lord, I pray for us 
today that we would not leave here feeling condemned for your word says in Romans 8 verse 1. There is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That we would not go away feeling guilty, but we'd go away feeling in awe of the wonderful love that we have received. And would you help us as we dwell on the cross, as we dwell on the fact that we were the Jew dying on the, in the road, and you, the great Samaritan, the great uh, perfect fulfillment of the good Samaritan, came and loved us. May that stir us for action, we pray. May we be a people who love well because we have been loved well. May we be a pe people who show mercy because we have been recipients of a great mercy. And may the world see it and give glory to our Father in heaven, we pray. And all the people of God said, Amen. Amen. Have a fantastic Sunday, everyone. Coffee outside. Enjoy it.